This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. If you're ready to get started, I would absolutely love to. We've had Let's do it. a minute to chit chat, but welcome everybody. My name is Adam Sokolich, also known as the best of live audio. And for quite a while, I've been interviewing the most fascinating thinkers, leaders, and doers from around the world. Over a year ago, I started interviewing some of the top TED speakers as well. And Amanda, you were one that I've always wanted to speak with. But it wasn't until just a few weeks ago when I was interviewing an amazing astronaut, Chris Hadfield, did you pop in the room, come up on stage and have a tremendous conversation. And then just a few weeks later, we're getting back on. So I am absolutely ecstatic to talk with you today. It is such a pleasure to do this. And I'm so excited about this new platform on Twitter. I think audio and live audio is it's magic. So I'm psyched. Absolutely, absolutely. And we know you've been on Clubhouse before, but for everyone here on Twitter Spaces, if you don't know Amanda, click on her profile. Yes, you will see she has a million followers and we will dive into your history with Twitter itself. We're going to dive into a lot of things, but you are a rock star. You are a famous TED speaker. You are a best-selling author. You've done quite well for yourself on Patreon, Substack, and of course, like I said, here on Twitter as well. So there's a lot of things that we're going to talk about today. And I think when you and I were talking offline, there's a common thread there that lines up really, really well with something I've been talking about uh, for over a year, and it's storytelling. And you do such a tremendous job, whether it's, again, in that music aspect or your writing and your speaking. So I'd love to dive into each one of those. But let's take a step back for a second. You've been on Twitter since when? I would have to go double check, but I think 2006 or seven. So like one of the originals, if you will. Uh, but back that, in the day, oh, way back. In- yeah, way, way, way back. And again, since then, you've done some tremendous things. Where would you like to start? Because again, we can dive into oh. the Twitter side of things. But, you know, I would also really love to talk about the TED Talk if you'd like to start off there. Is that cool? Sure. Uh, I mean, all these things are interconnected, as you know. I have one good story about the very dawn of Twitter. Let's do it. um, Which is, I was at South by Southwest. I remember this happening, and I had just gotten onto Twitter. And I was with uh, Neil Gaiman, who I hadn't married yet. Um, And he he had just joined Twitter, and I was also with Zoe Keating, who was this incredible cello player, and she was an early, early Twitter adopter. And my team, this one particular person on my team, Sean, had been trying to talk me into joining Twitter, and I just kept resisting. And I was like, explain it to me again. And he's like, you just like, 
you send a little thing. It's a teeny piece of text. It's called a tweet. And you can just sort of say anything about what you're doing or where you are. And I was like, that sounds so dumb. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, Sean, and I get it. But like, it just it just sounds like fruitlessly stupid. And he was like, just trust me and just do it. So we set up the at Amanda Palmer account. And I started sending a few tweets like, here I am, I'm doing a show, I'm at South by Southwest. And, you know, I had the app on my phone. This was back, I think, when I had a BlackBerry. Or maybe I was doing it on my computer, I can't remember. And then at a certain point, I remember I was at South by Southwest and I was sort of talking about Twitter and how stupid I thought it was. (laughs) That Neil, it was either Neil or Zoe, I think we were in an elevator or something. They were like, have you checked your at mentions? Do you see that other little icon over there? And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, you know that you can see when people are talking back to you, Amanda. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I I just thought I was sending these little pieces of information out into the atmosphere. And then that was it. And they were like, no, 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 no. You can talk to people. Look, go to your go to that other button. That's your ad feed. That's where people are, are talking back to. And then like literally, I think within a week, you know, that's when I started to have thousands of followers. And I think I even set up a gig like that week using Twitter because I was so like slap happy and punch drunk with with the quickness of communication with people. And that's what has been so amazing about Twitter. And also it feeds right into the TED Talk. Like a lot of what my TED Talk was about and the art of asking my book and everything was about was this like love affair with, with communication and messy connection with people. And Twitter played a big role in that story in my life as a musician, as an artist, as a relationship person. Like I I just keep thinking we're going to go back and look at this moment in history and be like, Oh my God, what happened? Like the internet came along and then what, (laughs) what happened to people? Um, so yeah, that's a little Twitter story for you. And I mean, I could go, we could talk for an an hour just about Twitter and my feelings about it and how it's changed. But certainly back in those days, it really did feel like a clubhouse because there were so few people on it. Absolutely. Well, before we dive in, I do want to touch on, like you said, as you've seen Twitter change, because I think that's fascinating for people in the audience, but also for folks in the audience. Again, we're going to cover Twitter. We're going to cover TED, the book, everything from, you know, the the stuff that you're writing right now, even down back to music as well, because there's so much great stuff that you're doing in all these spaces. And folks, in a little while, we're going to have an open Q&A as well. That's the power of live audio. We want to be able to engage and talk with you. So get your questions ready. You can always put your hand up, put it in the queue, and we'll get you up here as soon as we start that in just a little bit. Um, But Amanda, yeah, back to that point that you were just mentioning. You've been on Twitter for a while. You've seen it change. So for most of the people in the audience who haven't been on that long or haven't seen that type of change, and especially with the visibility that you have with with over a million followers, what are those changes that stand out to you? Uh, The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever you want to paint that as. Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, I I would say the biggest, um, I mean, the, the biggest painful and negative change is that it felt like Twitter evolved from a, a, like a purely social space Um, and sort of like exchange of information and exchange of ideas space 
into a, a commercial marketplace. And watching that happen was kind of a bummer. Um, because back in the early days of Twitter, there were no companies. You know, there were no, you know, giant corporations didn't have Twitter handles. There was no, you know, there were no politicians. <laughs> there were, or if, they, or if they were, you know, they were super early adopters and they were there to be social. And I don't blame Twitter for that. I mean, things grow and companies grow. And it's just like any small business that turns into a big business. You know, it, it was really sort of fun and like, you know, the way a teeny little restaurant that only has, you know, that only has 12 tables feels fun. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and, and yet if the food's really good and everyone wants to go to this restaurant and they start building out and all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, this feels like a huge cafeteria and the vibe is gone. You know, Twitter's gone through so many lifetimes and... Um, the, the thing I miss most, and I guess part of it is also my fault, you know, we've all collectively contributed to Twitter becoming gigantic. Um, and I brought my community over to Twitter. You know, one of the things that I've thought about a lot is I used to, the time that I used to spend just blogging and answering questions you know, individually over on my blog, whether it was living on my website or on MySpace or on LiveJournal or wherever I used to blog in the pre-Twitter days. Um, I brought all of that. And also I was on my forum, you know, and, and in a kind of a guilty way, I noticed that, you know, Twitter and Facebook, these open for-profit um, companies sort of started to take my time and attention to my community away from the forums, you know, which weren't paywalled. They were open source, you know, or, you know, open platform forums. And the immediacy of Twitter was so exciting that I was like, I'm not going to go over there and write a comment and then like check it the next day. <laughs> I'm going to go right now to this place where right now I could be not lonely and right now get my ego stroked and right now, like, you know, find a hand to hold in the dark right now because I want it right now. Um, and so the immediacy of Twitter really knocked out a lot of those other gestures and community moments that I used to have over on the Dresden Dolls forum, which was my band. And um, so, you know, Twitter, Twitter has, I, I say a lot, like as the artist that I am, it's sort of like live by the tweet, die by the tweet. You know, Twitter has contributed to some of the most incredible moments in my career from, you know, like showing up in a city like Sydney and saying, hey, I'm going to perform on the steps of the opera house in six hours. Who wants to come? And then 500 people are there, you know, and the, and just the delight that everyone takes in, in our ability to do that and the huge upsides of that. And, you know, and also being at a gig and tweeting, um, you know, I, there was a used record store next to the venue and I decided to pop in there and I just hid 10 record albums all over the venue if you get here before the show starts see if you can find them and tweeting out something like that and just being able to like create delight within my community yeah. to the flip side of twitter which is you know i either said something stupid or i did something 
you know, that people disagreed with. And all of a sudden, I thought I was just going to sit down and have breakfast. And instead, I'm looking at, you know, a stream of 5,000 people from all over the world who are really angry, you know, right wing, let's kill Amanda Palmer people, like making my day hell and everything in between. Yep. <laughs> so yep. like, That's what happens when you get famous though, right? You get a million followers and then everyone has an opinion about something it's probably related to what you're doing, but that's such a unique position to be in. You know, before we, we cover more topics here, I'm curious, it's always great for folks in the audience to, you know, to have a takeaway from the, from the conversations. And, and so from this one topic, as you think back on everything that you've done with Twitter so far, What's like a, an insight or, or rather like a, a recommendation that you have for folks that are obviously sharing their own stories in less than, you know, 200 characters or so every single day um, that they can take away that can that, they, that can help them? Right. What's something that you've learned that you can share with the audience about Twitter uh, that they can use? That's such a that's a great question. I mean, I have learned if you want to almost look at my job in the last 20 years as like an internet life storyteller, because <laughs> <laughs> sort of, sort of I am. Mm -hmm. And I also have looked all around me for, you know, whatever, 25 years since starting to use the internet at how other people tell their stories, whether it's through tweets or blogs or doing something like this. Um, my, my particular advice to people is to be a little more honest than you w would expect would be appropriate <laughs> because it is also where you walk into the danger zone and you have to be perhaps a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more brave than, than you would be. But what I have found is that when you're honest about what's actually happening in your workplace, in your life, with your art, in parenthood, uh, in a pandemic, with your mental health, like whatever it is, you know, everybody has a life. Everybody has a story. Everybody has something going on, even if it's I'm, paralytic and bored and frustrated like every life is a story and everyone's got their story to tell and what I have found is the more honest you are about what's really happening the more connection you will find with your fellow human beings because people will relate when you are honest and everybody has a bullshit detector and people can smell a million miles away when you're not really telling the truth. <laughs> and that isn't to say that we all have to be oversharing and TMIing all the time. But what I have found is there's like, there's two kinds of discomfort if you're talking on the internet. There's the discomfort of telling the truth about your situation and really being honest on the one end of the spectrum. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the discomfort of dishonesty and the discomfort of, you know, your mother just committed suicide yesterday and, you know, you've lost custody of your children 
and you've just found out that you might have breast cancer, but <laughs> you've, you know, you've set aside a room in your house to Zoom and talk about whatever you're going to talk about uh, with people, or you're sending your tweets saying that you've made a really great brownie recipe, and there's a part of you that feels uncomfortable <laughs> just saying nothing about what the reality of your life is. And somewhere in between there is a sweet spot. But given what I see on the internet, which is people feeling like they have to project something a little more perfect or a little more sexy or a little more alluring, I just feel like I'm here to balance <laughs> balance out the scales <laughs> and say, you know, there's also there's also being vulnerable and just telling the truth. Mm -hmm. and, and I have, I have found that telling the truth brings benefits and rewards that are endlessly unexpected. So to keep going on this note, Amanda, you know, it's another topic that it's on my back burner to bring up and I didn't think we were going to have time, but it does come back to podcasting and specifically it was a conversation that you had with Tim Ferriss, who is a, uh, I'm a huge admirer of his work. He's interviewed you on his Tim Ferriss show. Of course, you've interviewed him on your podcast as well. And I wrote down a quote that you prefaced your interview with him. Uh, and I think I have it right here in front of me because you were talking about how these conversations that we get to have with one another, they build something. They build this vast network, this safe, evolving kind of network of shared space and stories where this sort of stuff isn't taboo. It's just real. And of course, yeah. that led into a very powerful conversation that you had with him where he was sharing things that you wouldn't have expected, right? That didn't really align with his podcast or things like that. But he started to share and become more honest and more brave and more vulnerable as well. And that was a very powerful conversation. So, you know, I don't know if we want to go down that route. I wasn't necessarily expecting to, but just so you know, that really, really resonated with me, that quote and also that conversation. But of course, that, that's a huge, you know, uh, experience that you went through, you know, talking with Tim on both his podcast and your own. So if you want to talk about that a little bit, that would be fantastic sure. or we can go off of that in a different direction as well. Oh, uh, I mean, I can talk about anything. Um, <laughs> Let's touch on that. Really and then we'll go attention. back to the Ted stuff in just a moment. So Tim, Tim Ferriss, if for people here who don't know him is a great writer and podcaster. And he's sort of one of those, like, I want to know everything about everything dudes. Um, and he, you know, he, he writes a lot about health and fitness and um, work practices. And he's the sort of guy that from a distance I really stereotyped as, you know, like a dude guy who's really into fitness and podcasting and body hacking. And I really stuck him in a particular box, like a good box. I was like, yeah, I like you guys. <laughs> I know you guys. I've met you all at TED. You know, you're all really, you're all really fit and happy and you do all of these things. And then you podcast about them and you write best-selling books and your lives look perfect and fuck you. And <laughs> like, I love all you guys. You go write your bestsellers, uh, Tim Ferriss, like men. And, and of course that is a stereotype, right? And, um, you know, Tim, it, Tim is one of those people who, who 
defies stereotypes because he really isn't afraid of veering off road and going into topics and, 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 and experiments, whether it's the body or work or how we think, how our brains work. And, and what I've come to understand about humanity is that, and I've just learned this lesson again and again and again and again, is that every time you go to stereotype somebody, you just get bitten in the ass because everyone really is truly unique. And Tim blew me away about a year ago and changed by writing uh, doing a doing a podcast episode um, and writing a piece that was that was so gobsmackingly vulnerable and honest about how he had been abused sexually as a child, and not only telling the story, um, but telling the story around the story, what this did to him, how this made him who he was, how he still struggled with the complex PTSD that comes with being sexually abused as a kid. And I was so, uh, like, uh, emotionally (laughs) impressed and also just felt so much compassion for him and, and was so touched by the fact that this, like, this huge, famous, best-selling everything guy who, you know, everyone respects, and he's got this massive podcast with millions of followers and all of this stuff, was still, you know, able and willing to put himself out there when he didn't have to and be this honest. Mm. And when I see people, you know, my colleagues other writers, other podcasters, other people on Twitter, people posting on Instagram stories, wherever they are. Every time I see someone do that, every time I see someone take a deep breath and say, this is really hard for me, but I'm going to tell you this story. I'm inspired to be more honest with, with my internet community. And I feel like the the beautiful thing about culture and art and storytelling and on and off the internet, but especially if we're talking about the internet, on the internet, is this is a giant circle. And you never really know, you know, if you're writing a tweet or a Facebook post about a difficult experience or about your emotions you've got to bear in mind two things, you know, you're doing it for you. You don't want to feel alone. You want to feel seen and heard and recognized by your friends, your family, your coworkers, your fellow humanity. But you also should always bear in mind that if you go out on a limb and you say something honest, it has an incredible ripple effect because it is innately just by its, just by you putting it out into the universe it is, it is a seed of inspiration and you have no idea where it's going to land. And it is really a question of like, how do we want to be on the planet? Do we want to be honest about what's going on with us or do we want to hold back? And 
And so every time you, you say something a little more honest or a little more vulnerable, whether it's in a tweet or whether you're even talking about your work, but talking about how some of it's imperfect or whatever, you've also got to bear in mind that you're setting the standard of culture by saying what you're saying. You're also making a statement that this is an okay thing to do and people are watching. The end. (laughs) Well, why I love this, Amanda, it was actually, you know, to circle back to the topic of, of TED and TED speaking, when I started that series back last spring, so coming up in almost a year, my first interview was with the incredible Amanda Cut as Amanda Cuddy, Amy Cuddy, excuse me. And, oh, you, yeah. and you know Amy. And and she is one of the, of course, most popular TED speakers of all time. I think she has over 60 million. I think she's ranked in the top two or three. But she was the first person I interviewed. And it was it was a great conversation, but I could tell as it went on, it became more emotional. She became more uh, she shared more about her experience after giving the TED talk. And I felt a different level of vulnerability and emotion through this audio storytelling, if you will, um, that I had never experienced before. And wow, it was it was it was really incredible. But let's also continue on that note, because I know, you know, Amy, and I know we want to talk about Ted, uh, because that, that is another tremendous aspect of, of something that really helped, um, you know, share your story. And it's called The Art of Asking. So if anyone, if you've checked it out already, fantastic. It has over like 12 million views or something like that. Um, but if you haven't, go check it out. It is really, really powerful. And so what I'd love to do for the next few minutes, Amanda, is talk about your experience with your TED Talk. When I've interviewed folks before, I love to touch on, you know, the before, the during, the after. So think of storytelling. What's something that you did to prepare or what was it like a moment on stage? And of course, what value has it given you afterwards? So let's start with the before. You know, how, oh did, you get, how did you get connected with Ted? Let's start there. How did you, how did you approach them? Did they approach you? Tell us about that. Um, well, I knew Ted talks just from seeing them on the internet. I didn't know that there was a whole TED culture and I didn't even really clock that there was like one big TED conference that happened and there were a bunch of talks all at one time. Um, I just knew that like people did TED talks and they wound up on my computer screen and I watched them and they looked real fancy. (laughs) That's all I knew. (laughs) Um, And after I went through my experience uh, with Kickstarter, which was an incredibly complicated experience, you know, it was really thrilling, groundbreaking, record-breaking, exciting, and also really horrific, punishing, and awful, (laughs) all at the the same time. Wow. All in in one year. Um, And I came out of that sort of, like, meat grinder of my record-breaking crowdfunding year, really war-torn, like battered and bruised and confused and lost and hurt and exhausted. But also, I felt like I had learned something really strange and unique about what was happening with human beings and their relationship their broken relationship with asking. 
And it, it really sort of like composted down after a year and a half of touring the globe and talking with journalists all over the world and people in the music industry all over the world and going to conferences and also having to confront my built-in assumptions that I sort of thought everyone else was walking around with only to understand that my worldview was not actually shared by a lot of people. And I learned so much about asking and um, the like the problems with asking and the problems and the and the incredible discomfort and vulnerability and in some cases taboos around asking through sort of through the accidental lens of my crowdfunding campaign but it ripped the carpet up on all of this hidden stuff that I hadn't really looked at before which was people have a hard time with asking period with doing it themselves with being comfortable with people near them doing it you know even with being asked and I and I, I was like you know I I, I want to explain this <laughs> I need to say something about this and I'm not sure what to say and where to say it. And I was like, you know, I should do one of those TED Talks. This seems like the perfect place to explain what I've learned. And I didn't know how you did a TED Talk. I didn't know anything. Um, so I sort of asked around and someone mentioned to me, oh, you should talk to Thomas Dolby. Um, and if you're my age, you probably remember Thomas Dolby. If you're not my age and you're very young, you probably have no idea. <laughs> Thomas <laughs> Thomas Dolby was an icon in the 80s and did this amazing song. She blinded me with science. Dun, 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 dun. And if that sounds like something familiar, that's for you. You're my age. That's Thomas Dolby, hit of the 80s. Love it. Uh, still an amazing guy and, and musician and actually... Um, has gone on to do incredible things. He was working on TED at the time. He was one of the music curators. So someone said, just go get, find Thomas Dolby. You're Amanda Palmer. He'll take your phone call. Find Thomas Dolby and tell him you want to do a TED talk. And I was like, okay, I'll find Thomas Dolby. So I found Thomas Dolby. <laughs> <laughs> and and I was lucky because Thomas Dolby's daughter was a Dresden Dolls fan. So he like opened the door to me and he was like oh my god Amanda Palmer my daughter's a fan of the Dresden Dolls your band what can I do for you and I was like I want to do a TED talk how do you do one yeah. <laughs> and he said have you ever done any speaking gigs I said no he said oh, okay uh, do you know what you want to talk about I said yeah 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 I want to do this and this and this and this and he said okay do a version of the talk in front of some people anywhere and send me the video and I'll send it up the chain to Chris Anderson, head of TED. And I said, oh, God, okay, right, wow, what do I do? I could just do it at my house for some friends, but then they wouldn't believe that I was real. <laughs> so so I did something so, uh, like, so manipulative, but also, like, so, so classic. 
I sort of looked around my environment and I was like, what can I do that will make Ted take me seriously? And I was living in Boston at the time. And I was like, I know, I'll do it at Harvard. (laughs) Then they'll believe me. (laughs) And so I called up a friend at a Harvard theater and I was like, can I borrow your theater for a day? I'm going to do a fake TED talk in front of some fans. And she was like, sure, use it on Tuesday. So I wrote the talk down in sketch form on some note cards went to went to this empty theater at Harvard, did it, and then I and then I titled the video Amanda Palmer Speaks at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then one thing led to another and that's how I got my TED talk. Whoa. That's basically what happened. And that's a great story. You make know, it till you make it, people. Tell them you're speaking at Harvard even if it's kind of a lie. Well I love asking that question. You know, obviously it sets up more of a conversation to dive into Ted, but everyone's different. You know, some people, Ted reached out to them, of course. Sometimes they had to work really, really hard to get that opportunity as well, which is what it sounds like you did. Sometimes it's serendipity, who knows? But a lot of folks here, you know, public speaking and speaking in general is a is a powerful skill, right? And so being able to learn and improve is fantastic. And this platform here, Twitter Spaces, really gives folks that opportunity. So I highly suggest folks, you know, host rooms, you know, conversations, share what's on your mind. It's really, really powerful. But of course, they're always curious. How do I get to be part of TED? How do I give a talk of a lifetime, right? That's really hard to do. So let's take that one step further. Okay, you got your foot in the door. You've got the gig. You're preparing to kind of get up on stage. Let's talk about getting on stage for you. Is there a moment when you were standing on that red circle that stands out to you, um, that brought some emotion to you when you were up on stage and that you vividly remember? Oh yeah, actually there, there is, um, for people listening who haven't seen my Ted talk, it it basically, I, I talk about being a street performer and then how that informed my crowdfunding campaign and my relationship with asking. Um, And then also, you know, how I used to couch surf a lot when I was, um, you know, in my mid-20s and just starting in a band and stuff. And this sort of, like, radical trust I had in everybody. And also my shamelessness around asking for anything. Like, (laughs) can I sleep at your... I know I just met you, but can I sleep in your house? Um, And... One of the things that really, really, really was I memorized this shit out of it. So I could, you know, I spent so much time memor and my TED talk was long. It was, you know, 13 minutes and memorizing a 13 minute monologue is a lot of words. Um, and you know, I made a choice pretty early on in my process. You know, I went in naively thinking that I would just sort of have a couple of talking points and then I would improvise. <laughs> <laughs> nope. And then I was like, oh, that's really not going to work. I am really going to, especially since this talk is supposed to be 12 minutes and not a minute longer and not a minute less. Uh, and I wound up going a minute long. Um, I really had to memorize every word like down to every last and or and um and and because I memorized it 
and it was in my body like an actor's monologue and I could, you know, and I could pick it up anywhere in the middle if I needed to. And I really knew how each thought connected to the next thought. Um, I was able, it's sort of like the way an actor is able, if you've really nailed your monologue and you've memorized it and you know all of your blocking, I, I was able to really fall into it and almost play it like a song. And I surprised myself in the middle of the talk when I got to this moment where I tell the story of couch surfing um, in the house of a fan who's an you know uh, undocumented immigrant down in Florida and hanging out with her mom who barely spoke English. And it was an emotional story. You know, I'm staying at my fan's house and I, and I find out when I get there that her family have like moved out of their beds so that me and my crew can sleep in their beds. And, you know, and there, it was an, it was a heavy and potentially uncomfortable moment. And her mom takes me aside before we leave the next morning and, and gives me a Bible, which is, a, you know, for her, it's this huge, significant gift. And she, like, she says in as good English as she can put together, because I don't speak Spanish and, and she barely speaks English. And she says, you've helped my daughter so much. There's no way we can repay you. Thank you for sleeping in our house. Thank you for eating our food. Thank you for giving my daughter this gift. And I'm getting emotional even now thinking about it. And there was, I had practiced the talk a billion times, but this was the first time I was saying this story to a thousand people. And I got overwhelmed with emotion telling them the story and sort of looking into their faces and knowing that this was at the core of what I was trying to explain, which is asking is a two way street. And yeah, and I just started to cry on stage. <laughs> but I also, like, I'm a good musician. And when you're an emotional musician, you actually have a tool that you don't realize you're developing, but you develop, which is the ability on stage to let tears come to your face and maybe even fall, but keep doing your goddamn job. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's a skill you possess and you develop after years and years of playing emotional songs on stage and going like, oh, wow, I think I'm going to cry. But am I able to cry? Will my voice break? Will I be able to keep doing my job? Will I be able to keep playing this instrument? If the answer is yes, 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 go ahead and cry. If not, maybe don't cry. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you really learn. You, got, you have this secret knob inside your soul, which is like the crying knob and you know how to twist it. Um, and yeah, so I was able on that TED stage to get incredibly emotional authentically, but also like not get lost in it and keep doing my job and not forget myself and not forget my monologue and just keep plowing through. Well, and that's the power of storytelling, right, is when you can bring in another level of emotion. And if you if for folks in the audience, if you think about your favorite movie, your favorite book, whatever that aspect or, or rather channel of storytelling is, usually the best ones are the ones that create emotion. It's the, it's the movies that uh, make you laugh hysterically. It's the books that make you cry. I mean, that brings a whole new level. And, and just with the story you brought, I feel emotion. 
but I could tell it during the TED talk. And, and while you started a few <laughs> minutes ago talking about memorizing your speech and, and I've coached, uh, you know, plenty of TEDx speakers before and, you know, there's an aspect of memorization where people tend to seem like it's reading from a script or it, that it was memorized. And that usually takes away from it. But when you get yeah. so good at it that it comes out naturally, it's just it, it really made your talk just that much more special, that much more unique. And of course, it's led to over 12 million views. So I'm, I'm huge. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's a part of it. So I'd love to take it another step further and say, okay, we talked about what you did to prepare. So before we talked about a moment during, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd love to talk about after. What value has it given to you since then? And of course, this probably will lead into the book next, but answer that. The value coming from the TED Talk, where did it take you afterwards? Um, well, the biggest, I, I would say there are two big things. One would be a little bit more obvious in public. Um, one a little bit more sort of subtle and personal. The big obvious thing is I got a book deal um, because the talk uh, did was released, I think, the day after I gave it. Um, and actually, n not a lot of people know that, and it's not, a it's not a big part of the story of the talk. But actually, um, the talk did so well in the room that the head of TED, Chris Anderson, is like, this is the one we're putting online tomorrow. Get ready. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, right now? He was like, yep, this wow. talk is going out tomorrow. We're going to edit it and put it out tomorrow what are you going to call it? And I was like, Oh my God. Okay. And so, I mean, that led to, you know, even literally while I was there at the Ted conference book agents coming up to me and saying, we want you. Um, and, and then I had a whole next chapter of my life, which was learning about the publishing industry and getting a book deal and writing a book instead of um, being a touring stage musician, which was really interesting. <laughs> and, you know, that that's the big obvious one. And, you know, writing my book was a, a real experience. Um, I did it incredibly quickly. I, I wrote the bulk of my book in six weeks. Whoa. And then and paint a picture I for know. folks. Is that, I mean, you're saying it's fast. I'm sure a lot of folks in the audience aren't necessarily writers and authors, you know, what, and, and what would like, how long does it take Neil to write a book? I have no idea. 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Neil writes, so we're, we're talking about Neil Gaiman, um, uh, daddy of my baby. He, he writes fiction. I think fiction is different. Mm. Um, I was really more just laying down what happened, which is a very different kind of writing. Um, I think if Neil needed to tell a dispassionate story about, you know, uh, Neil, tell us, you know, whatever, tell us about your personal uh, comic book collection. <laughs> like, I think he could probably sit down and bang out a 50,000-word book in, in, in a month if he had a gun to his head and he had to. I think if you said, Neil, you know, you need to create th three new realities and a cast of 40 characters, and by the way, we need that book next month, I, I'm not sure he could do it. <laughs> so... Um, 
you know, it's a very different kind of writing. Sure. Um, and I was just curious this, to see like how, you know, again, what, what is an average length? Cause you were starting to talk like you did it fast six weeks and I have no concept if that's fast or slow. Um, and yeah, I, and I was just really, curious to, to kind of get that perspective before you keep going on. Yeah, it's really, really fast. And I also, I did nothing else. I left America. I rented myself an apartment in Melbourne, Australia. I didn't have a kid. I turned everything off and I just got up in the morning, went to yoga, drank two coffees and just sat down and wrote sometimes five, six, seven thousand words a day, which is a lot. Um, and I just did that nonstop for five or six weeks every day, you know, six, seven days a week. Um, because the publisher put me on a punishing timeline, number one, <laughs> mm. but also I accepted the punishing timeline because I thought, you know, if I say I'm going to publish this book sometime in the next six years, I know me, it's just not going to happen. I have to sit down and bang it out. And also these ideas, especially about crowdfunding, they're necessary now. I don't know how much value this exact book is going to have in six years. So let's just get it out the door and see what happens. So tell us, and don't give everyone the details, too much details, right? Because they can go check it out on Amazon. Uh, it's incredible. This is, of course, it's a bestseller and there's, uh, you know, very, very high reviews of this as well. And I am currently listening to the audiobook. Hey, for, actually, folks, if you're interested I will give away some copies of this. If you want it hard copy, great. But of course, we're live on the audio. So if you want Audible, I'll do that as well. Send me a quick DM and I'll send some of those out for free. So just send a oh, quick note. thank you. It's incredible. I want to keep sharing that with people. So that's a quick, uh, you awesome. know, giveaway for folks in the audience. But back to you in this story, because you were, you know, it came from your TED Talk and you're turning it into a book. Well, what's different in the book? Where do you dive in deeper? And again, we want to touch on the storytelling aspect of it and, and your experience writing the book. What was unique, either in what you wrote or how you went about uh, sharing that aspect of the story? Well, the way I approached the book was basically I, I, I wanted to know why the talk worked. You know, and of course, I thought my talk was great and I was very excited to do it and all that. But I was mostly thinking that my talk would resonate with musicians. Like, that's really where it was aimed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, all the fancy TED people will listen to it and they'll humor me. <laughs> yeah. And they'll think that it was amusing. And, you know, that this musician came on stage and talked about crowdfunding for 12 minutes and whatever. I wasn't expecting the huge like head nodding me to response that I got from that talk. And it, it really hit a nerve and it hit a nerve way beyond the musicians that were listening to it. And so I thought, okay, what, why, you know, why did this theme resonate with people? What is the problem? You know, what, and so I opened the book with that question. What was it about this topic that hit such a nerve with people? You know, why was there a woman who um, I think was a nurse who came up to me right after I gave my TED Talk and wept in my arms? 
what happened? What is that about? <laughs> like, and, and that was the question that I tried to answer with the book. Why do people have such a hard relationship with asking? What's going on with us? What is happening in our culture? How are we raised? What's going on in our, um, you know, in our mental closets that is stopping us from authentically, vulnerably, genuinely just asking for what we need when we need it? What's happening? And that's the, that was the starting point of the book. And so I decided to sort of explode each moment of the TED Talk and, and, and basically extrapolate, you know, I, I go deep into my story about the music industry. Uh, there's a big, long chapter about my experience as a street performer and what it taught me and what it taught me about strength and vulnerability and what happens when you really put yourself out there, um, you know, literally on the street as strangers pass by. Um, and I also added an element into the book because it was happening in my life as I was writing the book about my best friend, Anthony, who was dying of cancer as I was writing. And if I had written the book five years before or five after, Anthony might have gotten a passing mention or I would have quoted my best wise friend and something that he once said to me. But because I was going through it literally at the time I was writing the book, I threaded in my whole story of me and my best friend as he was dying um, because it was right on topic. And what he was asking of me and what I was asking of him and all the things that he taught me about uh, radical compassion and vulnerability, they just sort of floated to the top of the book and I went, okay, <laughs> wow. I guess my TED Talk is now also a book about a dying best friend. And, and those wound up being the key ingredients of the mm. book. And I'd be curious because, of course, you're still writing and you've just launched a tremendous Substack, uh, you know, that I hope people will check out. So go do that. But in just a second, you must have learned something from this experience of, of writing such a, a tremendous novel that now sticks with you. What is that thing that you learned that now that you're still utilizing that skill set or, or whatever it might have been? Oh, uh, you mean like things that I delivered in the book themselves that wound up uh, teaching me? Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah. And, and actually, when you go through the process of writing that novel, which is which is new, right? That's a new experience for a lot of people, but it, that, mm -hmm. that's really stuck with you and that you're harnessing, that you're valuing, and that you're continuing to utilize today as you write more for Substack and, and, and beyond. Well, I mean, one of the things that I did when I was writing is I did go to Twitter a lot. Um, and I, you know, I, one of the things that I liked least about writing a book was that it was lonely mm. and I hate being lonely <laughs> and it's a really lonely job sitting in a room behind a laptop every day. And expressing yourself through words, through your fingers onto a screen 
especially knowing that you're not going to have the instant gratification of posting it at the end of the day and seeing comments is really lonely. And for someone like me who's a stage performer and, you know, a blogger and a tweeter and in constant contact with, um, you know, the conversation with humanity, I found that an incredible struggle. Um, and one of the ways I ameliorated it was at least a couple times a day, I would go to Twitter and say, I, I can't look this up on the Internet. You know, I need a word that basically means, you know, like the, the you know, whatever, like the, it's the feeling of being betrayed. But like beyond that, like what's a word for that? <laughs> and then I would just watch. You know, I do watch a couple hundred suggestions come in through Twitter and 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 Twitter helped me write the book. You know, I asked people on Twitter for anecdotes. I asked people on Twitter for, um, you know, word suggestions. I asked them to describe concepts. And, you know, I wish I could have in my acknowledgments also thanked the, you know, the 900 people on Twitter whose like synonyms I used. <laughs> um, and, and that actually really, it not only helped the book be better to have, to have all of these like good, smart, robustly intellectual Twitter followers. Um, it helped me from being too lonely, you know, cause I felt like I had a bunch of little co-writers in my corner and I didn't go into writing my book with that plan, um, but it happened that way. And I was really, yeah, I was really like surprised by how much I needed a little, you know, peanut gallery and support crew in the form of whoever happened to be on Twitter at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, I'm constantly astounded at how smart my followers are and how smart, you know, right now I'm doing an advice column. You mentioned my Substack. I'm doing an advice column over on Substack, you know, and I invite people to really comment thoughtfully and I'll sit there reading the comments and I'm like, God, this is so embarrassing. Like a lot of my readers are better writers than I am. And they're, like, <laughs> they're more articulate. They're more intelligent. They have wider vocabularies and they're better at punctuation. Like, why did I get this job and they don't have it? Um, and I mean, and that's just also the beauty of the internet is I don't look out at my Twitter followers or Instagram followers or, or blog readers and assume that they're just a bunch of randos. Like I have a really smart, warm, intelligent, funny community. And the more I accept that they really are that and they're not just a bunch of quote unquote random people on the internet, um, the more trusting I get and the more excited I get to like go to work every day and say like, okay, everybody, like, let's write a column. Let's write a book. <laughs> let's go into the recording studio because I really do feel like I have good collaborators, you know, and they're not just an audience. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that. So you're, you're talk, talking about your column. Uh, you just started it, but you're pushing out really good work. What's one of the most, you know, recent stories that you're highlighting or one of the, or maybe what's coming up next? How about that? Uh, 
well, literally, when I get off this recording with you, this live with you, I am um, sitting down to write Ask Amanda number three in my advice column. Um, I, I've announced that I'm going to do four weeks of advice columns. So week number one, I answered a, a woman who was 39 and dying of cancer, and she wanted to know how to help her partner. Um, last week I answered a bunch of anti-vax <laughs> pandemic COVID related questions, especially how to deal lovingly with the anti-vax people in your life. There were two writer, uh, two people who asked questions about their anti-vax mom and their, uh, you know, and their ex-wife and dealing with a kid and whether or not to get the kid vaccinated. And that was, that was a real ride, writing that column. And today I am going to be answering a question um, that really touched me about how to deal with a friendship breakup and how the world seems to make space for divorce and, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, sexual partner breakups. Um, but there isn't a whole lot of space for when a friendship collapses or ends, and in this person's case, due to addiction. Mm. And I have a lot of feelings about that, having been on both sides of a friendship breaking up. Um, so I'm going to pour myself a coffee. <laughs> I'm going to sit <laughs> down. And I am going to write, uh, I'm going to just pour my heart out to this person, and I'm going to tell some personal stories and um, tell them what I've learned about going through friendship breakups and where the landmines are and how to come to some kind of acceptance, which is just really, 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 really hard to do. Oh, of course. And I'm working with an illustrator in real time, which is really fun. I'm working with this illustrator, Sarah Beetson. So as these questions come in and as I write, she's illustrating them for the column. Um, and we both have kids. I've got a six-year-old. She's got a brand new one-year-old baby and the two of us are like <laughs> sending each other whatsapp messages with this column and these questions and like trying to get our work done and always late and always dealing with kid dramas which is sort of part of why i asked her to be my illustrator i was like i need someone who understands me and <laughs> understands that i have and everything's going to be late <laughs> well and, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because of course you know as we talk about the theme today being storytelling and of course um you just brought up the aspect of, of illustration as well and illustration can be in in imagery and and pictures of course but at the same time in movies and so much more there's another thing that i know that you wanted to touch on and it's that very, very popular song at the moment, right? Encanto, which is a beautiful song. And of course, it fits within a beautiful movie as well. Uh, but, you know, written by uh, Lynn Manuel, who's just a really, really fantastic at writing uh, stories, but music. I'd love to hear what you're working on in that regards and just your thoughts on that space. Because I also have a six-year-old daughter in the other room who's loving the movie and loving the song. It's stuck in our heads. But that's something that's on your mind right now as well. So what's going on in that regards? Oh, my God. We Don't Talk About Bruno has been <laughs> pumping through our car speakers and in the kitchen nonstop every day for two weeks. I'm still not sick of it. It's such a good song. Good. Uh, there's another song from Encanto called Surface Pressure. And uh, one thing we haven't even talked about, even though we've been on the phone for an hour uh, on the modern phone, the Twitter phone, um, is my Patreon. So after I did Kickstarter in 2011, um, 
I decided that doing a, doing a Kickstarter campaign every year was going to be real exhausting. So I moved over to Patreon in 2015. And that is where I make my income. Um, and I'm, I'm sure a few people listening have probably joined my Patreon at one time or another. And it's basically just like the little Amanda Palmer art broadcasting station. And my, my patrons just pay for me to operate. Um, and I put out projects constantly, you know, sometimes it's a full album, but, and sometimes it's a video and a giant expensive project. And sometimes it's just an essay or a poem that I spend a really time, long time working on or an experimental, you know, animation project or, or whatever. I've done everything under the sun. Um, I think at this point I have put out almost 200 projects, um, including podcasts and you name it. And one of the things that I've been doing lately because I have such an unpredictable schedule because of COVID is I've just been hopping into the recording studio, webcasting live to my Patreons while I work. And sometimes we make the project up in the moment. And a couple of weeks ago, I took cover requests and I just banged out a Depeche Mode song live in the studio while everyone watched. Um, and this week I have taken a, I have, I have like buckled to internet pressure because so many people asked me to cover this song and I'm going to do a string quartet cover of surface pressure from Encanto live in the studio, live from the studio. So not one live take, but the recording session is going to be about four hours, including the orchestration of the strings and uh, the conductor coming in via Crowdcast and all of this stuff. Uh, my friend Jarek Bischoff is doing the arrangement. So my patrons are going to be able to tune in and watch me record a song from A to Z, like tuning up the string quartet, working through the arrangement, recording it, doing overdubs, putting the piano on, getting in the vocal booth, warming up my voice doing the vocal, doing as many takes as I need to until I get it right. And they're going to get to watch that entire process. And it's so fun. It, like, it's so fun working in front of my patrons because we joke and we chat and they give me feedback. And it's just, it's, and it's just also the beauty of technology. This sort of stuff wasn't possible even a couple of years ago. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. I, um, I've i got to check that out. So if people want to check that out, where do, where can they find the link? How can they sign up? Is it through Patreon? Is it someplace else? Just to make sure everyone yeah, in the audience hears exactly true. where. So if you just Google Amanda Palmer Patreon or you go to uh, patreon.com slash Amanda Palmer, uh, you'll find it. And this is for all my patrons, not just the high level ones. So you can, you, you can get into my Patreon for a dollar a month and get pretty much everything. Um, so yeah, if you want to join my Patreon, it is there and it's fun and the community is amazing. And there's all sorts of splinter conversations happening there's an official patreon facebook group that people are constantly posting their feelings to <laughs> uh and i'm starting a discord so that people can sort of be online and chatty all the time and it's it's a good 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 space 
um, filled with really wonderful people. Well, we also have a wonderful space here with some wonderful people. I see faces that I've recognized and known before. Matt, Rebecca, Evie, Nicole, of course. I mean, heck, we even have Tumblr, uh, an amazing platform in the room. What's well, up, Tumblr? Your competition is here. <laughs> and they have a birthday coming up this Friday. I'll do a quick plug for them, by the way. They, uh, they're they hosting a Twitter spaces here as well. And so go check out their profile. Go check out what they're doing. They're doing great stuff as well. Happy early birthday to you, Tumblr. Um, but yeah, we have some great people in this room. And and Amanda, I want to be respectful of your time because I know you have to go and you have more to write. I feel like we have to do this again because we we we, we sped you know as fast as possible over some topics. Do you want to take? Uh, we did promise people they could ask questions. Should we just do a couple super quickies? Yeah. So for folks in the audience, go ahead, raise your hand. We'd love to bring you up if you have a question uh, for Amanda about the things that we've talked so far or beyond. Get your hands in there, and we will bring you up as fast as possible. Uh, but again, we've touched on everything. I always love to do a quick recap, right? So just uh, the things that we touched on because today we did jump around from as many conversations as possible. We touched on your experience using Twitter and just being more honest, being more brave, being more vulnerable. Uh, we touched on the conversation that you've had with Tim Ferriss as well that just really duplicates that thought as well about being vulnerable and sharing what's on your mind. Uh, everything that you did to prepare for your TED Talk and the memorization, but also sharing the emotions that you felt that made it real. And then that turned into your book, which is fantastic. If For folks in the audience, if you're going to go check that out, please do on Amazon. And you can also send me a message and I will give away some of those for free. Um, and then just the writing that you're doing on Substack and your platform platform with Patreon as well. So there's so much great stuff there. And so, yes, let's bring some folks up real quick. We're going to go to Joey first. Um, Joey, welcome. Joey Vagabond, what's on your mind today? And Joey, you have a mute on. So just unmute real quick and we'll get to your question. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. No, you're good. What's on your mind? Uh, quick question. Um, I got into uh, Amanda's music when she was in the Grand Theft Orchestra. I was wondering if that's ever going to come back because it was one of the best albums of my life ever. That's a that's a great question. So the Grand Theft Orchestra was uh, was three people. <laughs> it was a small orchestra, but also we we brought in a lot of. Um, friends every city we went to which was a big part of the story of that tour so the grand theft orchestra at its core was jarek bischoff on bass who is uh coincidentally not coincidentally the arranger for the encanto song i'm doing next week because he's also a really wonderful composer and arranger and then chad rains was on guitar and michael mcculkin was on drums and we we kind of came together in this one magical moment made this record together, went on a tour, and then we all kind of exploded off in our different directions. Michael uh, went off to do theater in New York. Jarek moved to L.A. and is working on composing um, for film and theater. And um, Chad uh, went into also other theater production stuff. I don't know if we're ever going to reunite and tour again or record again, but God, I would be really happy if the stars lined up and we could, um, do it, do a re grand theft reunion. Um, but it was one of those things where like everything just happens to line up magically. And those four people managed to be in the same place at the same time. And I'm glad you loved us. We loved you. Oh, thank you so much. Y'all have a great day. And thank you Thanks, as well. Zoe. 
Yeah, we're going to take one more. We only have so much time, uh, and I want to make sure that we get some in. So, Angel, thank you for being so patient. Welcome to the stage. What's on your mind? Hi. <laughs> um, I was going to ask Amanda if you could write another book without considering the logistics of it. How would you deviate from the art of asking, and what aspects of that ongoing conversation would you include? Oh my God, that's a great question. Hi, Angel. So I actually know Angel. Angel is one of my favorite patrons and she's a great poet. And um, and I see her a lot when we webcast and do patron projects and I love her deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have actually had a book brewing in the corners of my brain for the last four or five years and... Uh, it's actually a book kind of on theme with the advice column that I'm going to run uh, today, right today. And it's about the emotional tools you need to deal with hatred, ghosting, and cancellation. And the more I look around nowadays, I, I see a ton of it happening everywhere. And I get a lot of phone calls from people who have been canceled on the internet, are getting piled on on Facebook, uh, they're getting excommunicated from their families, they're, whatever is happening, it's happening. And and as far as I know, there isn't, there aren't that many good survival handbooks for how to <laughs> for how to deal with this stuff like literally how do you sleep when a group of people or a person is saying I hate you and I don't want to talk to you again and you know fuck you and the horse you rode in on and like there's a lot to say about cancel culture and there's a lot to say about the politics of relationships but this isn't this wouldn't be a book so much about that as it would be a direct handbook about how to take care of yourself and and what to do and not do when that is coming right at your face and um and the more I don't want to write this book the more I think I should write it (laughs) because <laughs> I'm in a, u- a unique position to write this book, having been on the receiving end of a lot of people's hatred. Um, and I've talked to lots of people in the TED community and in my community and in the music community who look at me and say, Amanda, how, what do I do? How do I deal with this? You must know how to deal with this. People hate you. And I'm like, <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, that's true. And also, I, I actually... Having had this conversation for 20 years now, I actually think I do have some helpful things to say. And maybe instead of saying them over and over and over again on my blog or over the phone to friends in the middle of the night who are contemplating suicide, maybe I should put it down in a book. (laughs) Wow. Well, Angel, thank you so much for your question. And Amanda, what a great answer. Um, again, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know we plan for max an hour. We've already run long and there's a full queue yeah. of people. 
Your time too. You might have to go. <laughs> yeah, we, we well, I think what this says, Amanda, is people want more. We gotta do this again. And I'm sure there's more conversations, more topics, more people that we can get involved as well. I mean, this is gonna be really, really fantastic. So what do you say? Can we do it again sometime? Yes, 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 yes. Let's do it again. And let's do it again and start with uh questions. Cause there's so I'm looking down the list and there's so many like delicious conversations <laughs> in this that all I want to do is stay online for the next two hours and bring everybody up on stage. So let's definitely again. That's what we'll do. We'll schedule three hours of time instead of just one. on live Twitter and you've been a wonderful host. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Absolutely. We covered so much today. This is an absolute pleasure, Amanda. For folks in the audience, go ahead, push on that profile, give it a follow. There's so much great stuff that she's doing, especially right now that you'll want to pay attention to. We talked about it today and we were going to talk about it again next time. So folks, my name is Adam Soklich. Again, the best of live audio. We're here with Amanda Palmer. We've been talking about so many great things about storytelling uh, throughout the aspects in the experiences that you've gone through, Amanda. I really appreciate your time today and I appreciate everyone in the audience as well. You'll be able to play the recording right after this and uh, who knows, maybe I'll turn it into my own podcast or something like that as well. Uh, But more shows coming up soon and Amanda, I want to thank you once again. You are a tremendous guest and you are doing such great things. I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Adam. You are wonderful. I'm, I'm I'm so honored to be invited. This has been great. Wonderful. All right, Amanda and everyone in the audience, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Take care, everyone. Bye, everyone. This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.